You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's a film bursting with objects. The treasure troves of Xanadu, a snow globe, jigsaw puzzles, a winner's cup, the famous sled. Even the conceptual elements of the film's plot are expressed tangibly. Kane's mind-boggling wealth isn't an abstraction, but a list of concrete holdings, gold mines, oil wells, real estate. And the news Kane controls and manipulates, when yoked to another noun, is something one can hold in one's hands, a newspaper. Kane, too, is described as the incarnation of several abstractions. As his obituary tells us, he himself was news, as well as the embodiment of whole years in a swath straddling the 19th and 20th centuries. One might call him the American idea personified. But what these terms really mean, and how they're made manifest in Kane, is hard to pin down. At times, he seems to be no more than a vast, empty planet around which objects swirl. What's at his core, then? What did his life mean? One reporter searching for the secret of Kane bets that just one fact, the identity of Rosebud, would explain his whole life. Another suggests that it's in the sum total of his possessions. And yet another thinks, curiously, that even Kane's actions won't tell us who he really was. So what then determines his or any identity? What's the measure of a person, the objects they possess, the abstract ideals they claim to stand for, their actions, or something still deeper? Today, we're discussing possibly the greatest film ever made, from 1941, Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. This is Aaron Alonick. And this is Wes Alwyn. And you're listening to Subtext. So, Wes, I'm curious, if you had to name one object that is most important in your life or that somehow represents you, what would it be? Um. <laughs> no, no pressure. Just one thing. And you can't. No, no redos. Mm, does it have to be from childhood? No. Uh, I, I'd probably my iPhone. <laughs> no, I knew you were going to say Isn't that, that for everyone, some reason. Isn't that everyone's... That's your rosebud. But at this point, they start out in early childhood with it, do TikTok. It 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 is a rectangle. Keeps us company all our life now. Yeah, right. (laughs) We can't. It's not big enough to ride down a snow hill, but (laughs) maybe one day it'll. But let me think of a. Let me think of a more something with more sentimental value. The first thing that comes to mind that I have from childhood. Let's do that is a teddy bear that I got from my mom when I was five years old, and I still remember her giving it to me on my birthday, and I named it Charlie (laughs) Honeybear. I still have it. It's one of the few things I have, because when we came over from Ireland when I was nine, it's a long story, but we lost all our possessions that we had Mm. in Ireland, and we um, the only things that I had on my person did I end up keeping so all my everything from childhood is gone except for good old charlie honey bear well fun fact back of his head is burnt because i uh dropped him in the fireplace at some point he still has this soot stained back of his head but he's um he's still running strong they used to make him really durable back in the day how about you Oh, I don't have an answer for this. I'm putting you on the oh, spot. Um, <laughs> screw you. <laughs> I'd really have to think about it. I'm going to regret telling that story. I know. No, you have. I trapped you. I trapped you. Yeah. Um, no, but I, w- I was thinking about whether or not that's 
I was thinking about this idea of a totem object and whether or not people have these things, if they can name off the top of their heads. You know, you're part of my social experiment. If they can name off the top of their heads something that they would save in a fire, obviously, you know, Charlie Honeybear uh, narrowly escaped. Um, but um, <laughs> yeah. fun fact, Charlie Honeybear is uh, Susan's nickname for Kane. But anyway, um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I was reading a little bit about what Wells thought about the word rosebud that maybe even Kane didn't know or remember what that meant, that it was just a kind of an unconscious um a word that's that was floating around in his mind unconsciously from childhood that maybe he wouldn't even have been able to say that it was uh, written on the sled. And so whether or not that word as divorced from the object even means something even less tangible or less, I don't know, somehow explainable than the sled itself, that memory is such an unpredictable, unstable kind of thing and our relationship to our own childhoods can become so romanticized, estranged somehow. We can we take sometimes, as memory often works, we take memories, memorable events from things that are utterly inconsequential. And somehow those become the things that we remember best from certain periods of our lives. Anyway, uh, all of that to say that I, I was just thinking about the significance of Rosebud and whether this rang psychologically true on 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 a, a contemporary level. I mean, it must. It's very significant. People seem to agree this is a pretty good movie. So, Which, whether, which part rings psychologically? Okay, just the whole. The, the I, idea of Rosebud, of a singular object, of a life okay. reduced to, yeah, or something that one, one carries with you, even if it's just a word that you don't even know the significance of. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I When you started to ask that question and you said the word object, I started to worry that you were going to ask me uh, which of his which of his antiquities I was most impressed by, <laughs> and I thought, oh, am I supposed to know what some of those are? Because <laughs> I don't, I don't know any of them. Um, you know, one of the things I had reflected on is that that sled ends up in the big, huge room before it's burned. It's in there with all his possessions, including all those statues and other antiquities and i by the way that it's a scene that reminds me of the end of the raiders of the lost ark and the ark kind of is kind of a sled too right or it looks like one maybe mm -hmm. it could be mm -hmm. it could be repurposed as a sled it um what the final scene suggests to me is that what replaces the sled in his adult life are all these statues and other antiquities these possessions which you know, whereas the sled is something that can be used for play and childhood fun. And like I said, you can take it down a snow hill. There's a certain element of vitality and freedom associated with it. The antiquities are more about, you get the impression he's trying to aggrandize himself both by having those possessions, but also by identifying with whatever has been, whatever is the subject of a monument. I don't know if that answers your question. Your question was about, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, whether this was psychologically mm. accurate to the way that we relate to objects. I mean, I think that the final scene, they're taking inventory and they 
they have two categories for the stuff that's in that room, junk and art, right? And the $2 mm. stove, part of the estate of Mary Kane, uh, Charles's mother from Colorado, that's in there too, right? And so he seems to have amassed, and we're told earlier in the film, I think, right, that he has a big warehouse in Western Manhattan where he stored everything from his mother's estate and from his from this mm. house in Colorado, right? So, so the fact that all of these things are in the same kind of junk pile together or in the, maybe in the same warehouse um, or in, in this instance, you know, in the final scene in, in the atrium altogether implies like uh, the, the people going through an inventorying are trying to figure out what to throw away and what to save, what's junk and what's art. But of course, like, like any mother saddled with a macaroni necklace that their child has made for them knows, sometimes the junk is a, a lot more valuable or of much more psychological importance than some expensive vase or something like that, right? Yeah. So I, I the, the question is whether it's psychologically realistic. So you don't, do you have anything from childhood that I have lots of things. I mean, to? too many things. I think that's, <laughs> maybe, maybe that's the question that I have is the fact that one can reduce everything to this sled. I have probably, if I sat down and thought about it and made a list, I could think of 25 things that each represent some area of my life that are still kicking around somewhere at my grandmother's house, at my parents' house, in my apartment, in somebody's basement, you know, things that I've held on to. And so maybe it's the singularity of the sled or the fact that what one could be reduced to a single object. Like I think I'm interested in the fact that Cain can't be pinned down, it seems. Like Cain is uh, almost like a vacuum in the middle of the film. Of course, the point is that the sled doesn't explain everything, right? But the interest in the fact that this guy who is sort of everything and nothing and who is vast and simple at the same time, who has conflicting motivations and seemingly like a very complex personality, that he can be explained and not explained in a single object, I think is, I mean, maybe that just increases his complexity or something. Um, you know, that he has all these objects and really just one is the thing that has haunted him or something. It's these sort of like opposed binaries united across all vectors of his personality so that he would be a collector of everything in the world on the one hand and then just wanting, the, not wanting, but, you know, being explained by one object on the other hand. Um, mm -hmm. It's associated early on with his loss of his parents and his Capture by Thatcher. Is that the name of the mm -hmm. person who runs the trust, Thatcher? So I, I think there's even, it must have even more significance than many an object, childhood object would have for us. Right. He attacks Thatcher with it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Thatcher tries to give him a new one, and that forms the basis of a transition from childhood to adulthood. We jump over a whole bunch of years by kind of sledding over it, I guess. And the first act is really about that conflict with Thatcher. So I think the sled, it is about, as someone says later on at the nearly very end of the film, it is about something he's lost, uh, but it's also about what he becomes because he his desire to become a tabloid newspaper operator who can make or ruin people's reputations in the name of representing the people 
that is obviously framed as part and parcel of his defiance against Thatcher. I want to become everything you hate, he says mm-hmm. near the end of the first act. And, and even to the point where he's willing to publish articles that are not beneficial to companies in which he has lots of shares of stock. So I, I think the sled is also representation of, or it's representative of defiance and somehow that defiance went awry and turned in on itself. It, it didn't have the forward momentum that it was supposed to have. It went off track so that whereas he starts out wanting to be a man of the people and to fight for justice, the whole act of being involved in this use of information to create whatever reality he wants to create for his own purposes that becomes something that becomes about his own reputation. Mm. Yeah, I'm thinking about that replacement sled and what that's maybe representative of, right? Because we have the early sled is Rosebud, obviously, which is suggestive of nature and innocence and uh, femininity with his mother, his relationship with his mother. And, And then we have this replacement sled that Thatcher hands him, which has Crusader on it. It's the name of it. Oh, really? Um, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and of course, this is something tough and, uh, you know, representative maybe of, we think of a crusader, I think of armor, something protective that's donned against the world, against attack. But there's also something romantic about being a crusader, being a knight in shining armor, a, a, a protector, or someone who goes out and, and, uh, on a kind of a mission, obviously. And so I'm interested in the fact that this crusader sled is Thatcher hands it to him in the same way that Thatcher kind of hands him the money, so to speak, that makes that makes Cain able to be the defender of the people that he seems to wish to become. And that itself is a kind of crusading effort. So obviously the two sleds represent one one Cain in childhood, the other Cain in adulthood. But I suppose I'm interested in the fact that Thatcher supplies this sled to him. It's it's uh, symbolic to me in that Thatcher, of course, has like uh, affected his maturation by coming into his life and being his trustee and changing everything. But also this idea of crusading, which seems to run against, as you're pointing out, seems to run against Thatcher's personality or you know it's a way of Kane trying to defy Thatcher by being the defender of the people or whatever is also lent to him it's like an idea that's been lent to him by Thatcher as well perhaps just in negative right in defiance of what Thatcher represents but also literally in terms of this this sled as yeah yeah the money both gives him a target of his crusade and his discontent and something to fight against. And then it gives him the means for conducting the fight. So it creates a kind of contradiction or paradox for him from the beginning. And it's an odd situation for him to be in where he's not rebelling against his own father. And there's this suggestion by the mother that she's sending him to be brought up where the father can't get him. So there's the suggestion that the father has abused him, but Instead of going through that kind of rebellion against his own parents, he's doing it against a surrogate, 
who is what? He's not a foster parent exactly, although I, I suppose he must have played the role of a parent up to the up to a certain point. But really, he's the provisioner of the trust of the money. He's the source mm-hmm. of the money. And it's clear that the defiance that he feels towards Thatcher is directly translated into the interest in the newspaper. We get this jump after the sleigh, Thatcher trying to give him the new sleigh. We get this immediate fast forward to Thatcher hearing that he wants to run a newspaper. And then there's this montage of all this bad press <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that's being given to various companies, which Kane presumably has holdings in. You know, at the right before the end of the first act, we, we get to see, we get introduced to Charles, to, to Kane as a young adult. And it's, it's, it's interesting. He's very confident and self possessed in that very Orson Welles kind of way, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, given the circumstances, given the what's happened to him as a kid. He's awfully self confident. And it seems like that self confidence is built on top of his defiance, this crusade, you know, what you've called a desire to engage in a crusade. And there's even this remark about, I don't know if it's at this point, but you know, oh, I'll provide the war as if he's going to be able to use his newspaper to, I guess, create, to cause a war, the the war with Spain, I guess. Is that what it is? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a certain kind of, uh, there's a certain kind of power in that, but I guess the point I was trying to make is that the we get a different kind of father-son conflict than 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 usual here because in a way it's not it's not so personal and he's not fighting the person who raised him in the most important formative years but in a way he's fighting against the person who kidnapped him and we don't but we don't ever get the sense that he's going to I I, I don't know when it is he gets his independence and money I assume at eighteen but we don't twenty five they say. We, 25 okay Mm -hmm. we do we don't right yeah we don't get the sense that we don't know what's happened to his parents correct me if i'm wrong about that and we don't ever see him even considering the idea of reuniting with his parents we don't know how much contact he's had with his parents over the years i guess we we have to assume that he didn't have any uh or did he i don't know but uh, again i what i'm really trying to stress is this kind of displaced father Sun conflict where the conflict is with the concept of power and money in general that plays out with him as desire to fight the establishment and be the establishment at the same time. Mm. Yeah. With his talk of his, his confidence, this is something that maybe I, I certainly registered it too. Um, I, I was thinking about the contrast between Kane and Hearst. And I think that the most marked one is the fact that um, Hearst was not self made. Um, he was a guy who maybe curiously thought of himself as standing up for the little people. At least that was his motivation at the beginning. And that was, that was strange, right? Because he was never one of the little people, right? He didn't have, he was not someone who made his own fortune or something like that. In Kane, it's more understandable that he would want to stand up for the little guy, seeing as he, he grew up in poverty, but maybe what isn't as explainable is precisely this unearned confidence that comes with money and privilege. So so they're, they're sort of at cross purposes that way. And the, the, I think that the one thing, maybe not the one thing, but one of the only things that threatened to make this film really libelous 
though it was gone over, I think, by lawyers. But the one thing that threatened to make it libelous was this anecdote, which was entirely borrowed from her own life about you you supply the prose poems, I'll supply the war, Charlie Kane says. Hearst said almost the exact same thing to, I think it was Frederick Remington, mm. who was on the staff of of his paper, the, now I'm getting all the names mixed up, the Examiner, I think, was Hearst's paper. Mm. And, and he had right. the rival, just like we have in the film, it's the Inquirer, and the rival is the Chronicle. I think in real life, it was the Examiner, and his rival was Pulitzer's paper, which was the world, I think. Mm. So anyway, he sends Frederick Remington down, who's on uh, the artist on staff of of the Examiner, and Remington writes back and says, there's no war here. And Hearst says, you provide the pictures, I'll provide the war. And so, um, you know, this is one of the few, like, possibly apocryphal, but famous Hearst quotes that's actually repurposed for this film. So, so, so I, like, I, I understand Kane, and I don't understand him precisely because of the fact that, of, of this confidence that you're talking about. He does mention his mother twice in the film. I think at one point, and I, I, sh- I, should do, I should do a search for this before I say anything definitive, because I noted the two times that he mentions her. I think that at one point he's, he mentions that she's dead and that she died a while ago. Uh, there's also mm. the suggestion that I think they were receiving some kind of annuity for themselves, the parents, uh, $50,000. Right, they were. Right, yeah. Right. So... When she died and whether or not his it was maybe during his boarding school years and he couldn't he, he, he couldn't be with her. He you know, he was forcibly kind of removed from her until the point that she died. Uh, it's unclear. Uh, but yeah, sorry. Now now I'm kind of uh, gone off on a little mental tangent, but I, I'm interested in this idea of this. Yeah, this proxy war <laughs> that Kane is waging against mm. this against this parental figure. And it seems that he's able to keep the parents um, in this very exalted mental position precisely because of the fact that he has a proxy with which to, on whom he can blame everything that that has happened to him in a way that parents would normally absorb those blows, right? Instead, the parents remain like right. Rosebud, like the sled, especially the mother, of course, the father. Maybe there's no love lost there. But, um, you know, remains this person who's untainted by the vicissitudes of a long relationship or of what happens when you go into puberty and become a teenager and start rebelling and lashing out, right? All of that is absorbed by Thatcher rather than the parents. So the parents remain like, museum figures or something or like uh, mm. like something in a, in a museum themselves and i was i was really interested in this idea of the proxy which m- most often in the film is visually expressed with paintings or statues or some kind of effigy of of somebody appears almost for every major character i think and some except for the parents right so maybe they're or the mother so she it seems to me is the sled i think that's a very good point he never has a chance to become disenchanted with his parents so they remain idealized and when he's collecting these statues and other antiquities he's it in a way it's not just about self-aggrandizement but it's about the idealized mother maybe which is which is a feature of course of narcissism the connection to that ideal which is not which has not become disappointing enough and has not been mourned let's say so, you know, in the end, it's, yeah, the, what does it mean for him to say, 
Rosebud? I mean, is it a recognition of loss or is he in a way just holding on to the, the ideal to the very bitter end? I don't know if we can know that, but yeah. I think now that I'm thinking about statues and ideals, you know, in that last scene when they're cataloging everything, uh, I think someone makes a joke about one of the one of the statues of Venus. There are many of them in the shot. Uh, some mm. of them have heads, right? But one of them makes it makes a joke. One of the reporters says, "You know, twenty five thousand dollars. That's a lot of money to pay for a dame without a head." Um, <laughs> you know, so presumably that one that he's referring to is is headless. All those Venuses in that shot, and the fact that the one that's singled out is the headless one. And we're talking about the fact that the sled might be a kind of proxy for the mother or, or a symbol of the mother. All those Venuses, all those women, of course, would be um, symbolic as well. And, you know, we, we should talk about Cain's relationship with women and how, how this is related to his relationship with his mother. But I think that headlessness is significant because it does seem like it, it, it suggests, I think, the estrangement at the heart of Cain's idealization of his mother, right? That this is something that has no face, something that you can't, you can't see the face. It's misty. It's shrouded in memory and many years. And um, I mean, maybe it means something still deeper than that, right? The headless statue is so evocative of so many things, but something that can't be... Uh, pinned down, easily understood. Maybe I'm wrong to connect that w- with the mother. Yeah, I think that's a good association because it, I mean, on the one hand, it's not, it seems to suggest he's not being seen, uh, which is something that, of course, has become very important to him and people accuse him of, right? Well, they accuse him of wanting to be loved, and um, but in in this case, wanting to be loved it has something to do with wanting to be admired and, and seen. And then the other aspect of that is I think you can associate headlessness to objectification. Mm-hmm. So the the object is no longer a full person, which is part and part of idealization, but is a body, right? So that makes sense in explicitly sexual terms, but it can also be made sense of in terms of a more narcissistic orientation towards another person um, in which their subjectivity is not so much at stake as your own. So in a way it rep- mm-hmm. can represent two very different things. You know, one of, the, one of them, the sense of not being seen and then the other one that, that, you know, you're the only one who's important or should be seen, something like that. I don't know. Is that what you're getting at? No. Yeah, this is great. This is great. Yeah. I mean, I want to go, I want to talk about the two wives, but before I do, I think it's important since we've been talking about this motivation question, the desire to be loved, perhaps. Uh, Leland says something about Cain that maybe he had some sort of private greatness, but Leland never really knew what it was. And I'm interested in that expression too, or in, in any of these, right? In any private sort of greatness. Okay, that's what he says. Where is that? Uh, Leland says it during... Uh, the interview with Thompson at some point. He tells Thompson, you know, I I suppose he had some sort of, uh, I suppose he had some private sort of greatness, but he kept it to himself. He never gave himself away. He never gave anything away. Um, That, of course, is, (laughs) that has a couple of different meanings too, right? Giving oneself away, like like, uh, betraying his private thoughts and also like physically speaking, he wasn't maybe generous, didn't give things away to people. So 
but this idea of his motivation and of the fact that he had a private sort of greatness, I'm very intrigued by this idea because even Leland, who maybe knew him better than anybody, doesn't know what this is. And I'm interested in this idea of greatness. He had greatness, if, if you like, thrust upon him, but not greatness necessarily, but just a great deal of money, right? In a way, Kane is kind of like just one of these figures who's famous for being famous. There's no there there. You know, he didn't do anything to get this money. He wasn't special in any way. And it it gave him the ability to have the career that he had. It maybe gave him to the this confidence that we're talking about to have the career that he had. But otherwise, without it, he would have been no one, probably. I don't know. Maybe he would have built mm. up an empire on his own. I don't know. Um, uh, but, sled manufacturer. Right. <laughs> Biggest sled conglomerate in yeah. the world. And then he would have diversified sleigh, into- Is it sleigh or sled? Sled. Um, yeah, I think sleighs are bigger. Sleighs are like, you can- Oh, right. But yeah, right. horse-drawn. Though, though I have gotten my brother to pull me on a sled like, a, like it was a sleigh. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, so I, I don't- This question of his greatness, I was wondering if you had any theories about if you think he's great or not, and if you do, what you think this greatness is, where we can locate it. Is it in his spleen? I don't know. Yeah, it's a good question. See, great. He's driven. He works very hard, right? We get the early scene where he kind of moves into the office. Is he working from bed? He moves a bed in there, right? Mm-hmm. Is he working from bed at some point? Um, in any case, he's uh, he's devoting himself entirely to this project. And he might have ended up as the kind of trust fund kid who devoted himself to nothing or kind of trying one thing here or there and not putting in a great deal of effort and not being totally committed and moving on to the the next thing. So that part of the film interests me that he's able to throw himself into something like that, even though he has all this money because the money could become sort of a tar pit in which he sinks. Mm. Um, we're, we're for the partial examined life. We're reading Kierkegaard right now and Kierkegaard tells in either or the second book of either or now we're in, and which is about the ethical um, sphere. So there are these three spheres for Kierkegaard, the aesthetic, the ethical, and then the religious. But the, the point is that if you get everything you want, then you, know, you could call that a fortune, right? Having so much money that you've made a fortune or that you have a fortune. But in a way, it's, it's the greatest misfortune. And it's the greatest misfortune because it allows you to live what he calls the aesthetic life, really, which is an ambiguous term, but in this context, it just means a life of desire, a life of being able to, having the power and resources to satisfy all of your desires. And the idea is that it can't do that, and it creates a very unique kind of unhappiness to have the resources to to live a life of desire, but... It's not like the same sort of unhappiness as everyday unhappiness where we might fantasize about having all that money and power, but we don't, so we can't be corrupted by it. But in this case, he does have essentially, for his purposes, unlimited amounts of unlimited resources. Mm-hmm. And, and yet he's able to get some forward motion, which I see as the sled part of this. He's able to immerse himself in a project where... At least in the beginning, he's not going to get sucked down into the tar pit of cash and live a dissolute life. And yet, tragically, that doesn't 
that doesn't work. His attempt to escape his, it, he, he has an instinct right there as a kid, even when, when he attacks Thatcher, he has this instinct that this is not good for him. It's not just about losing his family, but something is coming, which could really overwhelm him. And it's that sense of defiance, which is going to, um, help him maintain some sort of an identity and, and be someone. But that defiant project just gets absorbed by the very thing that he's trying to defy tragically. So that's the most interesting part of the, the film to me. So yeah, I could, in that sense, you could see him as tragically great. Uh, he's at the psychological level, he's making this enormous effort to escape the perils of winning the lottery mm. and does something that you would, you think would be the surest path to, um, escaping that, which is wasting all of his money <laughs> at first, mm. right? He's wait a million a year, although that could last 60 years, I guess is what he says, but still wasting a lot of money on newspapers until it starts to make him a lot of money as well. And, but I don't think that's the, that's not the, um, that's not the tragic turning point. I think the turning point is just what it, how it, affects his view of the world. And I think the way it affects his view of the world is this is kind of another omnipotence of thought thing. He develops the idea that he can make anything he wants happen in reality, whether it's war or some, or getting Susie, you know, to become a famous opera singer or anything else. He can make that happen by manipulating information, by manipulating people's reputations, which is something, of course, Hearst did, and he tried to do it to Hollywood and Wells, right? He mm -hmm. tried to, he went through, took a lot of effort to prevent the film from even getting released. It's amazing. I didn't, I only vaguely knew that story and only, I had forgotten it. And just reading that again, in preparation for this episode, I was astounded by um, the efforts he went through to prevent the film from getting released. But it's about the, uh, the manipulation of reputation. So that's the means by which he's going to fight this fight against the wealth and privilege that are dangerous to him is to do tabloid journalism. What does he say at some point? That it, this is like another winner's tale thing to spread the gossip that wives talk to each other about. We're going to put hmm. that on the front page. And that, that becomes a new sort of peril, which sucks him right back into the very thing he's trying to escape. It's not our function to report the gossip of housewives, is what Carter says to him. This is after he's just taken over the Inquirer. Mm. If we were interested in that kind of thing, Mr. Kane, we could fill the paper twice over daily. <laughs> and Kane, that's the kind of thing we are going to be interested in from now on, Mr. Carter. Right now, I wish you to send your best man up to see Mr. Silverstone. Have him tell Mr. Silverstone if he doesn't produce his wife at once, the Inquirer will have him arrested. Have him tell Mr. Silverstone he's a detective from the central office. If Mr. Silverstone asks to see his badge, your man is to get indignant and call Mr. Silverstone an anarchist. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great because Kane, right, gets called an anarchist or a communist by Thatcher. I think he's called everything communist, fascist, anarchist. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, Jed at one point jokingly calls him an anarchist. Or is it the other way around? I forget. Um, but uh, yeah. I like this. I think this is an important 
aspect of the film, the idea, well, the, the winner's tale aspect, the idea of producing mm. old wives' tales or gossip for the, for the sake of political purposes. It's almost like a platonic noble lie of a sort, of a very different sort. He's going to be the citizen. He's going to be the champion of people, but he's going to do it with this particular method. And uh, yeah. Well, I don't know. That's the question, though. I mean, it, does it ever, um, is it ever noble? I mean, so, so he seems to be very canny about the fact that all this stuff will sell. But I don't think that takes a tremendous amount of intelligence to know that. I mean, he, he seems to be kind of inventing the tabloid if, in the film, but. So, of course, this is going to sell, but it it doesn't seem that desire for success is tuned to any particular direction. In other words, it doesn't seem that uh, his intention is to inflate readership with these kinds of tactics and then become powerful enough to like stand up for the little guy. He always seems to have this intention that he's going to stand up for the little guy. Like he has the declaration of principles, which he makes, which is important enough that I think I should, I should. Yeah. Let's do that. So he, it's a two sentence, I think. Yeah. It's a two sentence declaration of principles. He writes, I'll provide the people of this city with a daily paper that will tell all the news. Honestly, I will also provide them with a fighting and tireless champion of their rights as citizens and as human beings. And of course, in the scene when he's writing it, Leland points out that he started both sentences with I, and later Leland will accuse him of uh, acting as though he's personally doling out the rights of the, these these citizens, as though he controls the tap, or it's not the expression right. he uses, right? right. Services, um, it's, a, it's compensation for services provided or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. so... So immediately he starts, uh, immediately this declaration of principle starts with I, of course, it's all about him, but the first sentence is a lie, you know, that will tell all the news honestly. Okay. So he never seems to think that this is a contradiction. I mean, this is a, this is some sort of hallowed moment, right? But he never seems to think that the tabloid news is some kind of contradiction and it's never explained away as, okay, this is what I'm going to do to become popular. And then I'm going to get on the people's side, tell all the news accurately. Right. And then the second sentence, I will provide them with a fighting and tireless champion of their rights as citizens and as human beings, you know, means nothing. Just like everything he says means nothing. Um, you know, he doesn't need to be their the champion of their rights. How can a newspaper be the champion of their rights? I suppose by obviously the free press is important. I'm not saying <laughs> that there's no role here <laughs> for the for a newspaper. But I'm saying that, you know, he's not the law. He's 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 not the Constitution. He doesn't actually provide them, and he's not a judge, and he's not, you know, like he doesn't actually provide them with he can't anything. Levy, levy wars and <laughs> well, right, yeah, and I, I suppose he might be able to manipulate the world into war or the country into war, but he doesn't have the official power as a war maker. He's not a state. That's right, and he's the... not a representative of the citizen, right? As he wants to be. But sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, and and his his desire to champion the little guy is never borne out. I mean, this idea of wanting to drum up a war because it would make good news is actually chilling. I mean, it's the very opposite of that. Like, he wants to send people to get killed in the interest of his own uh, news-making apparatus. So we don't see him do, really doing anything good. And then and and his his 
personal convictions, such as they are, if he has any, are so nebulous that it allows everyone, as you pointed out, to call him both a communist and a fascist at the same time, that he throws his support behind someone, then he denounces them. Significant shot of him with a with Hitler. Um, you know, he seems to have no core. Everything's just orbiting around this empty space in the middle. And then when we see him in his campaign speech, uh, something very similar. It's all about him. It's I, I. And then in the end, all he does is he sets himself as being against Gettys, who we, we never really get a clear understanding of what makes Gettys so bad. But, you know, Keynes says very interestingly, right, that he doesn't want to make any promises because he didn't think he had a chance or something like that, right? So he's made no campaign promises. And then he says, well, the one I will give you is that when I'm in power, I'm going to prosecute my opponent, right? That doesn't do anything for people. That's not, and that's not standing for anything. That's just using, that's just using the office as a cudgel against people you don't like. So- Well, I think it's- It's ambiguous because it, I think Geddes is supposed to be a representative of Tammany Hall corruption, right? So it makes sense to go after people who are corrupt, but also in this case, it's personal and it's just right as you said it's just someone he's who's he doesn't like and is a competitor and who he can punish as a competitor if he loses so it's that it's a very ambiguous situation and i think that kind of sums up his whole position where the his attempt to do right keeps getting um adulterated by his own attempt at self-aggrandizement or any or other motives well, and, and how is he not a symbol of corruption himself? I mean, I think um, I really like this little moment when Gettys, after he's blackmailed Kane in Susan's apartment, walks downstairs with Kane's first wife. He's very gentlemanly to her, <laughs> you know, offers, I think, to give him give her a ride in his car or something like that. Um, I made a note of that scene. It's very odd because what Gettys has just done is pretty corrupt in and of itself too. Right. But um, um, we get, but on the other hand, Geddes is kind of ex- exposing the truth about her relationship with her husband. So he has done a sort of public service <laughs> himself. Um, that's right. And he, he also has, I mean, that, that whole scene, that whole conf- confrontation scene is shot in really interesting ways, as is every single scene in this film, of course, every, as lots of people have said, every single shot has an idea behind it. Um, You know, Gettys at one point is in this deep focus shot, is in the the back of the scene with Kane in shadow. Emily is in the foreground. And then Gettys steps forward to join Emily in the light so that in the background, Kane and Susan remain kind of smaller and shadowed. And so the composition of such is that uh, Emily's body and Getty's body are arguably maybe trapping the two, right? They've, mm. uh, they're, they're sort of conspiring against them. But it, it also makes Kane and Emily look kind of evil and sinister in the background. And in fact, they have been doing something wrong, right? And so, and that significant walk that, that Getty's makes where he's in the back in the, with the, the shadowy figure of Cain, and then he walks into the light, could be read so many different ways, right? He's exposing Cain 
he's just as good, sorry, he's just as bad as Cain, but he's going to pretend to be good or he's going to make Cain look like the bad guy, right? But it could also be meant to show that he's kind of superior to Cain in a way. Cain stays in that in the background. Eventually he does come forward, but the shot composition changes at that point. The camera's in a different position. So the the, the camera is maybe trying to tell us something about Getty's relative worth to to Cain in that scene. And so not just visually, but also Gettys makes some significant statements over the course of that scene. He's doing this partially to uh, protect himself and his family. He doesn't like the fact that Kane has been, I guess, you know, running things like political cartoons of Gettys in a prisoner's outfit, a striped prisoner's mm. outfit, which is making him look ridiculous uh, to his children. So he cares about his children's perception of him. He cares about their well-being, it seems something that Cain will prove seconds later that he doesn't care about, right? He doesn't care about his son's reputation or trying to keep this out of the press for the sake of um, his wife's humiliation. And he also says that, Gettys also says that he thinks that Cain is going to need more than one lesson to learn his lesson. Um, he's, he's going to, to need to be taught uh, twice at least. And that turns out to be very perceptive. I mean, he sees that Cain is... An egomaniac, he and and it doesn't seem that Ked, that Gettys is one. So I think there's a lot of ambiguity in the way that this scene is set up, and in kind of how we're supposed to think about the the moral superiority of one versus the other. Like I, I think that Gettys at the end of this scene comes across actually. I mean, he's it's funny because he's blackmailing him, and obviously that's terrible. But you know, he comes off looking maybe better than anybody except for Emily in that whole uh, setup. So yeah, I think that's very interesting. I I think that is that situation is ambiguous and the sort of complicated way that Geddes comes across reflects kind of the complicated way that Cain comes mm -hmm. across in the whole film, which we'll talk more about. And I, there was something you said about he never does anything good, and I want to um, dig into that a little bit in the next part. So sure. So yeah, so we're going to end our first part here and next week we will continue our discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.